Well, good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor here at South Suburban. We want to uh, welcome all of you. Welcome new members. Uh, God bless you. Thank you for coming in the midst of uh, our life together as we serve for the sake of Jesus Christ. Um, as uh, Pastor Joe had said, uh, on September 9th, we're kicking off a new sermon series on the book of Philemon. You may want to, I mean, that's a couple, three or four weeks from now. You may want to start reading that now. It's a long book. And um, for those of you who know, it's not really a long book. But somebody's thinking, you're going to get a whole sermon series out of it? It's like, come on. You don't think I can get a sermon series out of that? But we'll talk more about that later. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Joe preached on radical hospitality. Man, I love Pastor Joe. Amen. I love, uh, there you go, brother. I mean, Pastor Joe and Pastor Drew, you're lucky to have us. That's all I got to say. We work well together, and we're pretty good preachers, too. Uh, Pastor Joe did a great job setting the tone uh, for what I want to focus with you over the next couple of weeks. It's not really a, uh, a series. It's standalone sermons, but they really kind of fit together because he sort of set the tone. Uh, Pastor Drew would call these sermons insider sermons. Um, that is, is that most Sundays we try to uh, focus our worship and our preaching uh, for those who've just come into the, to the life of the church, those who are just visiting our guests. Uh, it is an extremely... Um, frightening thing sometimes to visit a church, especially if you're not coming with somebody who's invited you and to walk into a place and try to figure out, you know, where the worship center is and, and the bathrooms. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. And so we try to be sensitive of that and, and, and celebrate your courage. Uh, but, you know, August isn't really known for lots of uh, visitors coming to visit. My apologies if you are here today. Well, for that matter, August is really not a month known for, for members coming, but, um, you know, as they're gearing up for the upcoming year. But uh, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be looking at some things that you might consider as insider sermons. That is, is to get us ready for what God is going to be doing. And I believe that God is going to be doing some great things in the life of our church, uh, particularly in this coming fall. Uh, as we, uh, as folks begin looking at getting back to church or finding a church or uh, dealing with uh, things in their family and the struggles of life, you might want to, you might consider this sort of our fall kickoff, uh, fall cleaning sermon series as uh, uh, we look over the next couple of weeks. So that's what I'd like to do. So I'm going to be looking today at a uh, uh, Luke chapter 13. If you have your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some out in the Welcome Center. You're free to actually go there and get one that's yours. It's our gift to you. And uh, uh, don't, don't worry if you don't today. Uh, have one with you right now. Uh, there may be one somewhere near you. Uh, Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. This is uh, um, a, a tremendous uh, story um, that... Uh, begins with Jesus coming to a synagogue to preach. And here's what happened on the day that Jesus was a guest preacher at the local church. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. 
And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. Mm. Jesus didn't like that very much. And he says, The Lord answered, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May God give us the grace to understand and apply that which the Spirit will teach us this day. Amen. I have a really good friend. Uh, he's also a former professor. He actually preached uh, my service of ordination when I was ordained into the ministry in May of 1995. His name is Dr. Jan Lynn, and he's the author of about a dozen or more short paper book, uh, paperback books on church life. Um, they're they're, they're, his early ones are good. The ones he's been writing lately aren't that good. But, uh, <laughs> but he's a friend of mine, and so I can say those sorts of things. Um, I, actually, I've been blessed to be able to be a pre-reader for two of his books. And as a matter of fact, in one of them, uh, entitled Rocking the Church Membership uh, Boat, I'm actually mentioned in the foreword of that book. That, that's my claim to fame. I've been written in the foreword of a book. And, uh, but he's written two books. Uh, that I really like, and they're, uh, they're, here's, here's the titles. Are you ready? What Ministers Wish Church Members Knew. Ah, good, that's a good title. And that book was so popular that he had to write a follow-up called What Church Members Wish Ministers Knew. We're starting to see some conflict here, aren't we? But uh, one of the chapters in, in the book uh, Jan uh, wrote about what ministers wish church members knew is entitled Healthy churches can die before they know it. Healthy churches can die before they know it. It is an absolutely frightening chapter. Like marriages, like businesses, like sports teams, we all begin with a certain list of priorities, don't we? We all begin with the things that we say we're going to do well. We're not going to make the same mistakes that other people make in our marriages or our relationships. We're not going to make the same mistake that other businesses make. We're going to keep our focus zeroed in on the priority of providing the best product or the best service, no matter what. But as it always is the case, life gets in the way. And suddenly, our goal and our priority isn't being innovative, isn't being attentive, isn't providing the best service or product, but our focus becomes more on profit margins or, or uh, uh, stock prices 
the messiness of, of running a business, you know, hiring uh, folks who are, are good for the business and, and all the things that you need to do to attract and keep those folks, uh, salary, uh, 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 insurance, all the perks that allow you to get the best that you can get. And suddenly, before you realize it, you're not focusing on the priority anymore. You're focusing on these other things that seem to distract us from the things that are the priority. Well, Jan Lynn's not the first to have written about this, and I can assure you he probably won't be the last to have written about it. As a matter of fact, there's a guy named Tom Reiner. You may have heard of him. <clears throat> He's a prolific writer, uh, a scholar uh, on just average, everyday, practical kind of church stuff. And... Um, He's uh, written a, 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 a blog post, an article, on the four kinds of churches that are about to die. And he names them, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but one of them is called the Country Club Church. Now, this is kind of interesting to me. I mean, there's actually, we actually, in the Christian church, we have a church just outside of Kansas City called Country Club Christian Church. Now, who on earth thought that was a good name for a church? <laughs> Now, to, in their defense, it's in a community, a neighborhood called Country Club, but I would have probably called it First Christian Church of Country Club or anything else other than Country Club Christian Church. But in this chapter or in this section of the article entitled The Country Club Church, Reiner writes this, members in these churches see their membership as perks and privileges. They want their styles of music, their worship times, their types of architecture, and their preferred lengths of sermons. So here's where Ronner quit preaching and started meddling, in my opinion. <laughs> they pay their dues so they should get their benefits, or so the thinking of the members goes. Don't ask them to evangelize, to put others first, or to make sacrifices. After all, it's their church. Today's lesson that was read to you from Luke is a perfect example of how easy it is to lose focus as a church and as a Christian. It's not a sermon intended to beat us up, but it's a sermon intended to be honest at the struggles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, in today's notes that are in your bulletin, I normally list like three points, you know, three things to help you remember the themes and the overarching focus of the message. But this week, I've not given you three points. I've given you three questions, three questions that I hope that you'll continue to consider. And they may be questions that you won't get the answer that you want today. But I pray that there'll be questions that you'll think about, that you'll talk with your friends or your family about today at lunch or tomorrow or throughout the week. Our scene opens in this story with Jesus preaching at a local synagogue where Jews have gathered to pray, to sing psalms, to hear a sermon. Not much different today than it was 2,000 years ago, is it? And sometimes when preachers preach this text, uh, you can do a Google search and see what kind of titles preachers will give this text. And even the headings in your Bible will say something like this, Jesus and the crippled woman, or Jesus healing the woman who was bent over. And there's nothing wrong with that. And as a matter of fact, you know, there's a part of me that one of these days I'm going to take one text of, of, of Scripture and preach on it every day for an entire year because I don't think I'd run out of stuff to say. 
But this text, I think, even though it's perfectly appropriate to focus on the crippled woman, we're going to do that for a little bit this morning. This really seems to me to be a sermon more, or a, a passage of scripture focused less on the crippled woman and more on the synagogue leader. Or perhaps even better, the synagogue members, all the folks who are there. But let's take a look at the woman first. The text says, And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. This woman was bent over and not able to stand up straight. The question that I want to ask you today is, What are the spiritual dimensions to the world's brokenness? What are the spiritual dimensions to the world's brokenness? Now, we don't typically diagnose physical ailments with the word spirit. I I dare say if you went to the doctor this week and you told the doctor all of your symptoms and she checked your pulse and heart rate and all those sorts of things, and then she said, well, this looks like a spiritual problem. You'd want your money back. We don't normally think about physical ailments being caused by spiritual issues. And for me, this is especially fascinating because it's in the Gospel of Luke, and the guy who wrote this, Luke, is also a physician. He's an expert in problems with the body. Now, a lot of modern interpreters, they like to suggest what the real world or physical issues might have been. For example, if you were to do some research on this text, A modern interpreter might say that this woman suffered either from a specific disease like scoliosis or or severe arthritis of the spine. Whatever it was, they say it was a physical condition causing her back to have curved so that she's almost bent all the way over. I don't know about you, but I mean, every day in life when I meet people, I recognize that we see the world from different perspectives. I mean, for example, I probably see every single one of your bald spots when I'm standing next to you. You cannot hide the top of your head from me. You can't see my bald spot at all, unless I'm sitting down. You know, I can only imagine what it's like to see the world from different perspectives. And think for a moment what this woman was dealing with that her entire life, for 18 years, she's gone to church. And for 18 years, when she greeted folks at the local synagogue, she had to greet them like this, bent over and bowed down. Now, if you read the uh, sermons from the early church, from the first couple of hundred years of the church, and we still have copies of those, uh, a lot of those folks that wrote those sermons in the early years of the church said things like, this woman represents the world. As the world is bent over and broken and beaten by the weight of shame, by the weight of guilt, by the weight of brokenness, dare we say it, by the weight of sin. A friend of mine who is a Roman Catholic priest uh, mentioned to me this week that a friend of his, who's also a Roman priest, but also a medical doctor, had just gotten back from Haiti on a medical mission trip. And one of the things that his friend who went to Haiti said was that he had forgotten how he comes under spiritual attack when he's in Haiti. 
we sometimes forget the spiritual nature of our physical ailments. We sometimes forget the spiritual nature of what everyday life for us is like. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that sometimes the things that you and I endure in the course of our week are not necessarily because of bad choices we made, not necessarily because of the bad choices other people made, but sometimes they're because the spiritual forces are attacking. The Bible affirms this. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, your medical doctors, you, you, those of you in the medical profession, y'all know this. Y'all know that there's power in lifestyles and, and emotions, and they have, a, they have an impact on our physical bodies. People who have high-stress jobs have a high rate of heart disease, or high blood pressure, depression. We all know how those things impact our health. But what about the spiritual forces of evil, from what Paul said? As hard as it is, I try to be aware of those spiritual forces, those spiritual attacks in my own life. You know why? Because they are indicators that you have attracted the attention of the spiritual forces of evil. Now, why have you attracted their attention? Is it because that your mind is being conformed to the mind of God? Is it because you're trying to share God's love through Jesus Christ? Is it because you're trying to seek the lost? Is it because you're trying as a church to welcome broken and hurting people into this place that they might know God's love through Jesus Christ? When the spiritual forces of evil attack each of us as individuals, when they attack our congregation, as frustrating as it may be, it's a good sign. Because it means good things are about to happen. It means the victory of Christ is, to break, is about to break out in your life. And I'm starting to feel like a Pentecostal. I'm getting so excited. <laughs> you understand this. Because of your obedience and your openness to God's word, the spiritual forces have suddenly started paying attention to you. And the one thing that they want to do is to shut you up. What they want to do to this church and churches who are seeking to follow what God has called his church to do. They want to distract us from what is really important. They want us to buy into the idea that following Jesus is all about me and not about what I'm being called to do for the glory of God. I'm always amazed at some preachers on, on, on television, and you've heard of them, who say, if you follow Jesus, wealth, fame, good fortune, good health ought to follow you. I'm not really sure how the first century disciples and apostles would have heard that message when they were being hung on crosses, run through with spears, and dumped into pots of boiling oil. Sometimes life throws its worst at us, and sometimes the reason is because the spiritual forces of evil are attacking. This is what happened, I think, to this woman. 18 years. As the disease progressed, 
as the power of the spiritual forces of evil sought to oppress her. And she bent lower and lower and lower. You know what the one thing she didn't do? She didn't stop coming to church. She didn't stop coming and looking for a word from God. She might have been bent over, but brothers and sisters, she wasn't beaten. And she knew that someday someone like Jesus would come along. But then there's this synagogue leader. (laughs) And this synagogue leader begs another question. Is there a difference between tradition and traditionalism? There's a famous mystery writer turned philosopher, G.K. Chesterton. You may have heard of his mystery novels, the Father Brown series. It was on public television for a while, BBC for a while, if you like that kind of stuff. But he, he, he really also, as he got older, began to write about life and, and about the faith. And he was a committed Christian. My favorite book that he's written, I actually don't like his Father Brown books very much. He's probably not going to be happy with me when we get to heaven. But he did write a book called Orthodoxy, and that book I love. And in that book, in Orthodoxy, he says this, quote, Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. He's kind of a snarky feller, isn't he? But he's battling the prevailing idea, a prevailing idea that is much a part of our culture as it was in his uh, years ago, that if, something, that if there's something we've always done, then we should change it. Or if it's something that someone else has done, then we shouldn't do it. Tradition isn't necessarily a bad thing. Tradition grounds us into a bigger community of faith. Tradition says that there's something bigger than just what I want or just what I think should happen. Some examples, the creeds. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, etc. The creeds connect us to the faith of the Christians that go back to the first century. They teach us how to talk about the faith. Christmas, Easter, they're traditions. Christmas is a tradition that reminds us of something significant about who Jesus was. That is, is that God clothed himself with flesh and came and dwelt among us. Christmas teaches us that even though there are religions throughout the world that will tell you how to get to God, Christianity tells us how God came to us. Easter. Easter is a tradition. It's a tradition that tells us of the great and one-time event when someone was brought back to life after they were dead. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is powerful and significant. That through it, Jesus conquered sin and death. Without the resurrection, Paul says, our faith is in vain. They're traditions, but they're good traditions. But sometimes traditions can become traditionalism. That synagogue leader, a respected member of that community of faith who had been selected by the elders of the synagogue to take care of the synagogue, to take care of day-to-day activities, opening up, locking up, 
leading worship. Now, he isn't the rabbi. He's not one of the elders, but he's important. In the original Greek, and, and I'm just I'm transliterating this, not translating it. In the original Greek, uh, his title is called the Arch Synagogus. Arch Synagogus. You, you might have heard that phrase, Archbishop. He, he's a keystone that holds everything together. In my first church, when I graduated seminary, had a little church, about 30 people. We had an arch synagogus. You, you don't, I don't need to tell you her name, but you know who she is because everybody has had an experience with him or her. You know, the person who shows up first to unlock the church and is the last to leave. The person who picks, arranges, and sets the flowers in front of the communion table. The person who told me whether I had the right tie on that day and whether or not I should dress differently next Sunday. That was before I was married, so I needed, I needed the arch synagogues to tell me how to get dressed. Now it's not a problem anymore. You all are chuckling, but you know who she is. And you also know that she annoyed the daylights out of all of us. But you also know that because she did all of the work and we didn't want to do any of it, we would do just enough to make her happy so she'd keep doing her job because the last thing we wanted was for her to quit and somebody else have to do it. That's who this synagogue leader was. The synagogue leader was probably somebody that annoyed people but was an important part of that community of faith. He reminded them of their tradition, of the Sabbath. But on this day, he slipped into traditionalism. Instead of tradition serving us, he expected us to serve tradition. Tradition for the sake of tradition. For him, the Sabbath day was holy. No one argues that. But something got shifted in his mind. And no longer was the Sabbath a gift to us, but we became slaves to the Sabbath. Listen to what Luke, the physician, says about him. But the leader of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which to work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. That's nuts. That's ludicrous. Now, but there is a part of me that does get it, I suppose. I mean, if you ask your pastors here, I'm going to give you some heads up. There's one thing that we really get irritated with. Pastor Joe, Pastor Drew, Pastor... Uh, well, that's me. Pastor Ike. I'm Pastor Ike. <laughs> We're not big fans of folks wanting to come talk church business with us on Sunday. Don't want to hear about agendas today. Don't want to hear about meetings that we need to schedule. Don't want to hear about how the facilities need to be looked to. Don't want to hear about how you don't like the blinds on that window. Or the font in the bulletin is the wrong font. Those are important issues, but not today. Not today. All that can wait. But that's not what's going on here in Luke. What's going on here in Luke is not a complaint about what was or wasn't on the agenda at the last synagogue board meeting. It was a daughter of Abraham. A sister who was bent over in pain. And was in desperate need of the touch of Jesus. And the arch synagogus, that leader of the synagogue, 
had lost his perspectives. Thankfully, churches don't lose their perspectives, do they? Thankfully, pastors and elders and deacons and board members never lose their perspective. I want to ask you a third question. How can we be a person-driven church? Now, I know most of you probably know Rick Warren, who gave us a great phrase when he wrote the book, The Purpose-Driven Church. I love that book. The purpose-driven church. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I appreciate the title of his book. I appreciate what he says. But I'm going to interpret it a little bit because when he talks about the purpose-driven church, in every page, he immerses that purpose with what the purpose is, people. More specifically, the gospel coming into the lives of people. Jesus did not die on a cross for a meeting. Jesus did not die on a cross for a constitution and bylaws. Jesus did not die on a cross for a program or board meeting or decorations. Jesus died on the cross for you and for me, for people. Now here at South Suburban Church, as we continue to discern the identity and purpose of the church, of this congregation, that's all a good thing to do. The New Testament, imagine this, actually gives us a great deal of information on what the answer of that should be. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of age. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Not exhaustive, but very helpful. The purpose of the church is to preach. The purpose of the church is to teach. The purpose of the church is to heal. The purpose of the church is to forgive. And what is the object of all these things? People. Pastor Joe, in his sermon last week, included this service card. And it's in your bulletin again this week. I want you to look at that, if you have it. We're asking you, as we head into this new season of our church into fall and the families God will bring in our midst, I want you to look at the things we're asking you to discern whether or not God is calling you into it. Hospitality. People are going to come into this place and into this building bent over, weighed down with sin, weighed down with brokenness, weighed down with hurt, weighed down with fear unsure of of who's here is this a place for me are there people in this place that look like me with regard to their brokenness and their fear and their uncertainty about life that are seeking a touch from God it is incredibly courageous to come to a place like this for the first time 
And the folks that we're calling to serve in that position are folks who care about people. Who can see and spot those who are just like them and need a good word. Need a hand that helps straighten them up. Need an arm upon which to lean as you lead them. Not to me, not not to this worship service, but to Jesus. Worship and production. We know that this is the place folks begin to get the forward, maybe, or the first chapter of the message of God's love. This is the place where folks are introduced to the Jesus. This introduced to Jesus. This is the this is the context that most people think of when they think about church. It, it, it's one of the first entries that that people think about when they are looking for a word from the Lord. More people come to church on Sunday morning to experience the worship than call any of the pastors or elders during the week. They're looking for Jesus in this place, during this moment, in this time. And to be a part of that, to be able to be aware of of what folks are seeking and, and how best to communicate that, that's what we're asking those of you who are being called to help with worship and production. Groups and classes. Like I said earlier, you you just scratch the service here. But groups and classes, that's where you read the whole book. That's where you build relationships with people. That's where you meet folks who will stand with you in the times of uncertainty. Kids ministries. Kids ministries is not some place that we send the kids so that y'all can have some peace and quiet for about an hour. It's a place where trained professionals have spent the entire week trying to figure out what is the best way to communicate the faith to your children so that they grow up to be Christians, people of faith, student ministry. Now, my oldest just turned 10, but the one thing that frightens me to death is the day when they hit roughly the age of 18. For some of you, it might be 38. I don't know. And they leave home. And we send them out into the world. A world that doesn't care about them, but only what their worth is for the world. A world that tells them to be a good person, yet shows them images of hate and objectifying our bodies, both male and female. A world that laughs at them when they say they believe in something bigger than themselves. A world that ridicules them if they dare mention the name of Jesus. We are raising up warriors of peace, the peace of Christ. You know what all these things have in common? Notice we didn't put on here, do you want to serve on the board? We didn't put on here, are you interested in serving on a committee? We asked you, are you willing to invest your lives in people? Because that's why Jesus came. God of mercy, God of grace. As you're seeking to call folks in this place to ministries of service for your glory, there might be someone here who is uncertain this moment, this time, to make that commitment. But we pray that your spirit will whisper to their heart that they can make a difference in the lives of people wherever they go whether it's their family, their place of work, at school. That no matter where we are, when we go to lunch this afternoon, help us be mindful of people. Remind us 
of the brokenness and burden of people and the power that you've equipped your church with to speak the gospel message to them. Help us, O God, recognize that you've called us, yes, even in our brokenness, even in our unworthiness, to be an integral part of your power, your might, your grace, and the lives of people. In Jesus' name, amen.